From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. Welcome to the WLEI Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Savas, and today we're talking with Frank Palak and Laura Harrington. Frank is the retired president of Honda R&D Americas, while Laura is a retired chief engineer also from Honda, and they both presently teach lean product and process development at The Ohio State University. Today's episode is all about product development. We discuss a specific case around the Honda Passport. We talk about the role of the chief engineer and the future of the automotive industry. Frank and Laura, thanks for joining me here on the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. So uh, I feel lucky to have both of you here on the podcast today because you represent two important sides to the product development process. Uh, Frank, you were formerly the president of Honda R&D North America. Laura, former chief engineer, uh, last product was the Honda Passport. And what what's compelling, what I'd like to kind of kick things off with is exploring the relationship between the business side of product development and the customer side of product development. Laura, as the chief engineer, you were responsible for delivering something the customer would want to purchase and love to drive. And Frank, you represented the business side of things. You had to make sure this thing would work for Honda financially. And I'm, I'm curious about how you two work together on the business side and the customer side, maybe Frank, start with you and 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 how you um, worked in that role, and specifically with 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 Laura. Yeah, um, specifically uh, when we talk about Laura's product, um, we at Honda had a factory down in Alabama that uh, our job is to keep full. You know, if you look at a factory in any auto OEM, uh, basically that's the engine that drives the company. The, the factories are the engines and R&D and engineering, uh, product planning, they are just feeding fuel and air into that engine. So we have to come up with new ways to keep that factory full and running smoothly. And the sales guys are kind of like the exhaust. You know, they take the, they take the products out the back door and uh, then they sell them in the marketplace. But we got to keep that factory running smoothly. And our challenge was that uh, Alabama had some capacity that uh, we needed to fill. So my job was to come up with an idea uh, to fill that factory. And we assigned uh, Laura and we said, Laura, hey, you know, we've got a lot of, uh, we got great platforms. We've got the pilot, we've got the MDX, we got the Ridgeline. How do you leverage that, those platforms in order to create a brand new, brand new type of a product that attracts a new customer. And how do you do that? And that was the assignment basically that we gave her. And within uh, you know, a successful lean product process development companies, uh, that's there's a lot of autonomy that's given to uh, developing a good product and making it great. So that was really the basics of the uh, initial assignment. Laura, you could flesh that out a little bit, but that was really the assignment that we gave her. We said, hey, fill this factory, we've got about you know, 50,000 units that we need you to uh, develop capacity for. And uh, 
or to sell and to just go ahead and develop it and make a concept. And that's how, that's basically about the amount of instructions we gave her to start. So how did you respond to that, to that assignment, Laura? Yeah, my role as a chief engineer with the 2019 Honda Passport, as well as any product that uh, I worked on within Honda, any of the fantastic products that we've launched uh, that I was honored to be a part of, uh, was to first and foremost ensure that we're developing a product that customers truly value. And this is one of the central principles of LPPD. Frank and I teach a course at Ohio State. We're adjunct faculty, and we talk quite a bit about how important it is to develop products that customers truly value. So in this case, uh, this uh, was no different. And so my goal and my role was to ensure that whatever we did, so I had to develop, or my goal was to develop a derivative off the Honda Pilot, which is uh, number one selling SUV in the midsize class. It's a seven passenger SUV. So, you know, that's a hard thing to follow up on. How do I create a product that is distinct from the Pilot, but that is satisfying customers in a unique way uh, to satisfy market demand. So I had a unique challenge in this case for the 2019 Passport, and that is that Frank, president at the time, had a very strong opinion about what that product should look like. I did. And, <laughs> do you remember that, Frank? I do. <laughs> and uh, the way Frank approached it was the way that many, if not most companies, approach new product development, and that is what we call in LPPD uh, a point-based solution. He wanted, if you, do you remember what, what you were looking for, Frank? Well, I, you know, I, I kind of wanted something that was designed for, uh, you know, myself as a, as a family. But I also, you know, when we gave her the initial instructions in a, a beautiful A3, I was very, very uh, succinct in saying, you have to use the platform. You have to carry over commodity designs. You have to follow the very specific design rules and specifications, standard architecture, you know, the manufacturing uh, standard assembly processes. I honestly, if you remember when we kicked it off, I gave you, I, I, I put you in quite a box and I pushed her towards a, an area of where I thought the product should go, which was, I, I felt like we needed some sort of a suburban fighter, a great big mm. SUV. That's what I thought. And I even gave her all these rules in the A3, and uh, uh, she bucked it. <laughs> all right, so so we know what, we we all know what a passport looks like, and it's definitely not a suburban. It's it's no. quite a bit smaller than that. It's still you know it's a it's a large vehicle. It's bigger than a CRV. But uh, so what? How did how did that happen? How how did you, Laura, or the the team decide that? this original vision wasn't the right one. This wasn't what customers actually wanted. How do you go about resolving that, to, or, or not resolving, but even discovering what customers actually wanted? Yeah, well, I initially intuitively felt that a vehicle larger than the uh, number one selling pilot would potentially cannibalize sales for the pilot. I couldn't just intuitively get a sense for our customer that was that much different than the pilot customer. So uh, as part of the LPPD process, we went to the actual spot, talked to customers, 
went to campgrounds, went camping, uh, talked to dealers, talked to folks who didn't buy the uh, pilot and tried to understand a unique customer that we could capture in addition to uh, the pilot. Uh, so we put together what was considered a, a business case based on looking at not just a vehicle larger, but one that was smaller, uh, noticing that this is around 2015, the Ford Edge, Jeep Grand Cherokee, Nissan Murano, these products that had launched into the market, these five passenger midsize SUVs were just selling like it, uh, the, the amount of sales continued to increase. So we brought a business case forth that uh, seemed to be a very compelling case for developing a five-passenger midsize SUV. So I took this to Frank and to uh, the rest of the senior leadership, and because Frank's opinion was so strong that we needed a larger vehicle, that the team then had to go back and regroup and really look at how we're going to flush out what is truly valuable in this segment. So we did something... Um, maybe unusual. Uh, and, you know, we shared this story at the Passport launch. So, you know, we usually keep this stuff very close to the best, but I'm very comfortable sharing this story here. Uh, Honda has a fantastic fabrication team. And I met with the team and uh, we asked them, can you take a pilot, seven passenger midsize SUV, cut it down the middle, meaning cut the front end from the back end, and then attach the back, so it's the front end of a pilot, and attach the back end of an Odyssey. And then take another pilot and attach the front end of the pilot to the back end of an MDX. So what we did here in essence was we created two prototypes, one being larger than the Honda Pilot and one being smaller than the Honda Pilot. And we took those on a road show, we took them around the country it brought in customers, potential customers. And we said, which one mm. do you like? Do you like the larger vehicle or do you like the smaller vehicle? And in the course we teach and in some of the consulting work we do, this is known as this uh, sort of set-based design solution where you come up with multiple ideas and then through experimentation, you hone into uh, the final product. And what we noticed was that, you know, everybody liked the vehicle that was bigger than the pilot, but it was a very similar customer to the pilot customer. The person that I would use this for these particular instances, and it's the same responses that a pilot customer would give. And these were people who were very similar in style and lifestyle to a pilot customer. Then when we asked the customers that are potential buyers, what they thought of this sort of prototype five-passenger midsize SUV, we saw a brand new customer emerge. We saw young men, we saw empty nesters, mm. we saw very young families, and this is a new uh, customer base, one that was somewhat distinct than that of the pilot. So we knew we were on the right track, and with this information and the business case, we brought it forward, and then we were able to push this forward and which is now in mass production and uh, yeah, very well selling vehicles. It's, it, it was it was an exciting and especially challenging development. Um, but I was glad that he had the team really make sure that our ducks were all lined up in developing a product that um, was very successful in the market and continues to be. I th I think what's uh, interesting there is the conflict. You 
dug up some evidence, you talked to customers, and uh, you, you thought you had demonstrated that this uh, this size vehicle wasn't the right size vehicle. The big size vehicle wasn't the right size vehicle. Frank said, "No, you know, I I, I still think this is this is where we need to go." And so you had to go back again, start cutting vehicles up and <laughs> welding them together and, and taking around these sort of uh, Frankenstein automobiles to, to get more concrete feedback. How important do you think that challenge was to, to delivering a great product? Do you think you would have developed uh, the right product had it not been for that back and forth early on? Yeah, absolutely not. Uh, a lot of companies... Uh, apply this what's called a point-based style solution where one person with a very strong opinion says let's go in this direction and basically the company follows. I'm fortunate to have this background at Honda because even though Frank had a very strong opinion and he is my president and I don't want to make this sound like it was easy because it wasn't but Honda also adheres to these lean principles and so overall, the organization was on board with, and Frank was on board, and he championed my desire, the team's desire to really explore multiple solutions. And if you, you know, if that is part of the company culture and mm. the team is uh, armed to do it, and we had the tools in place to do it, uh, had everything from the team enthusiasm to the fabrication department to, again, senior leadership support. Uh, we were able to, again, develop a product that uh, sold and continues to sell very well today. It's a great product. It's uh, Honda. For those who aren't familiar, the Honda Passport is a great selling product. It's the has the largest interior volume in its class. It has the larger largest interior below floor storage space in class. And this was all done. We went from going from good to great. I, I would say it's called embracing the tension. That's mm -hmm. what it is. There was tension in the organization, a lot of a lot of tension. And uh, we considered the pilot to be a disruptive. It was the biggest eight passenger, uh, big best selling eight passenger vehicle out there in the marketplace. And we wanted continuous innovation of that product. We wanted it to go a certain direction. Or I wanted it to go a certain direction. Laura embraced that tension. She came up with a different concept. She was a very strong leader. She had a compelling vision. She had great product focus um, that and utilized manufacturing efficiency. So she fit. She she answered the call that we asked for to make the factory full and got market share. When she presented that in a total a total package, everybody was convinced. And you you skipped over the one area. Laura, that you had to convince, you know, all upper management in Japan and the dealership body too. So, I mean, it was a, you need a strong leader to do that. And that's what the LPL does at, at Honda, the chief engineer position. Well, I'm also curious about, you know, your role as president, Frank, you had a vision for the product originally. I would think it takes a certain element of humility to say that, no, this is the right direction to go. What was your experience like is, you know, what was sort of the tipping point for you in making, in making that decision? Well, clearly, when she could tick off all the boxes mm. and show that she could get the market share and achieve the A3 targets that were given to her in a different way, more efficiently, by the way, than my vision would have would have uh, uh, required, um, everybody was convinced. And we have a, a strong leadership uh, cohort that comes together 
the sales, the manufacturing, the R&D, we all come together and make this decision jointly. So it's not just me by myself. And then, of course, we have to convince everybody with the business case. And and Wara uh, not only proved the technical uh, viability of the product, she also proved from a customer viewpoint that it was going to be a great product. She introduced this hidden under floor storage for the customer that we had never even thought about with a spare tire and, and this hidden underfloor storage that they wanted. Um, it was it was a, a very, very, with a minimal viable prototype, by the way. She proved all this stuff with, with literally, you know, a lot of times you spend millions and millions of dollars to prove these types of concepts. She did it with, you know, some scrap pilots that she cut up and put together. <laughs> it was pretty good. And, uh, and she convinced everybody, including the top sales guys, the top manufacturing guys, all you had to do is show this vehicle and then show the results and everybody was convinced. And, you know, that, that really takes strong leadership and a compelling vision and a product focus to make that happen. Well, also, um, you know, you said, you know, Laura was able to bring everybody on board, including manufacturing. And so as you're developing this product early on, I am interested to learn, you know, why engage manufacturing so early? Right now, you're just building prototypes, trying to figure out what the product is going to be, and and you, know, why bother to engage that far down the, the the process? And how do you bring them along to to understand and and um, uh, rally around the vision? Maybe Laura, can you speak to that a bit? Sure. I have always been of the viewpoint, and this is, uh, again, part of LPPD, uh, part of the activity we teach. It's definitely been central to my behavior to make sure that the organization, the entire organization, including manufacturing and including some key supply base, engage with engineering early and often. And I'll demonstrate the value of that through an example. And again, this is something we shared with the media early. So, um, you know, I'm happy to share it here. It's a very uh, compelling example of the benefits and the importance of collaborating early and collaborating often with the entire organization. Early in the passport development, the timeline was extremely tight. And the importance of getting it right was extremely uh, the level that the, it was important to get it right up front because this vehicle is running on the same uh, line as the Honda Pilot. So problems with the passport could potentially impact uh, manufacturing of the Pilot. So we brought manufacturing in at the beginning of the Pilot program. As soon as Frank gave it a green light, so let's go ahead and start uh, developing the passport. Um, I brought manufacturing in and all we had at that point were design sketches. That's all we had. Now, Frank and I have noticed in some of the consulting way acti activity that we do that it's very common for an engineering organization to completely develop the product and then toss it over the fence. And then manufacturing needs to deal with that and try to figure out clever ways to actually get this scaled up. We brought manufacturing in very early. Honda does this in all of projects. And for me, I always have my eye on the ball or eye on the target with this. We brought manufacturing in and we just had sketches. And uh, the leader of manufacturing quality looked at the sketch and said, I see this vehicle is at least six to eight inches shorter than the pilot. And he pointed out, if you do that, 
the spare tire, because of the rear crash requirements, is going to have to go inside the vehicle on the pilot. It's underneath the vehicle. He said, and if you do that, we cannot accommodate that the way the line is currently laid out. Because if the spare tire is underneath the vehicle, like it is on the pilot, the vehicle's up high in the air. If you put the uh, spare tire inside the rear of the vehicle, that has to be done at a different station. That has to be done at a station where uh, the vehicle is at ground level. So because we did this, and because Honda is all one team, design, engineering, manufacturing, supply chain, and sales, they took on this challenge of trying to figure out with such a compressed time uh, timeline, how they're going to actually shuffle the stations around so that they can get that spare tire into the back of the vehicle as opposed to putting it under the vehicle. This is something that I personally, many in the engineering team hadn't even considered. We did not realize mm. the impact, mm. what a significant impact that was to the manufacturing line of making what to an engineering we thought was maybe just a pretty straightforward, simple change. So because we were able to collaborate early, because we collaborated with manufacturing often, they had the time to actually develop a solution, a very elegant solution that didn't cost any extra money. And we were able to ramp up the vehicle uh, in uh, record time. Well, it probably turned what would have been maybe a combative relationship had that problem oh. surfaced late into a collaborative one. Yeah, Frank, you want to speak to that? Yeah, I, I, I want to say that, um, you know, while I was listening to Laura, she brought these guys in. That's true. Um, I will say that successful lean product process development companies that uh, they that that create great products in a, in an efficient way typically will have front loading with the sales guys, the 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 procurement guys, the suppliers, the manufacturing, and uh, you know Toyota is a great example. Ford's a great example. Honda is no different. Uh, you know. The, when we launched it, when when we wrote that A3, that A3 that gave instructions to Laura also gave instructions to the mm. factory, to the supply, to everybody else. So there was a, a a skeleton team that was brought together. Now, you know that that's that's commonplace because that's a that's the matrix organization that uh, a lot of successful lean companies have, where teams and the functional sides um, are dedicated towards those areas. A great example is what Laura just mentioned. One of the functional experts in assembly said, hey, we can't put the tire in the right place, right? So the technical functional expertise has to cross-reference with the teams. The teams have the dreams. The functional side is, hey, what's possible? What's reality? What can we do? And so successful companies usually have this type of a matrix organization. What was successful, what, what Laura did as the chief engineer of that project was go even deeper. She went deeper to to not just talk to the top levels. She went back down into the zones, into the areas in weld and assembly. And then, of course, on the the, the technical side of the R&D aspects of the styling, as well as the the uh, how you're going to actually develop the parts and pieces with the suppliers. So she actually did a lot of that um, uh, correlation and collaboration up front that made this vehicle very successful. It was, I think it's and I don't know if this is. Um, if I'm overstating this or not, but I believe that that was one of the smoothest mass production startups we've ever had in the history of uh, development in North America, because it was it was the collaboration was so w well done up front and the utilization of common platforms and, and uh, components 
and the work she did with the factory made it very, very smooth. So um, we've been talking a lot about the chief engineer, in this case, Laura, and, and and what she did to make this vehicle successful. And, you know, there's kind of a, there's some mythology around this role of chief engineer and what makes a good one. Uh, and before we dive into that, um, Laura, could you just explain what, what does chief engineer mean at Honda? And then I know it's a bit embarrassing to talk about yourself, so maybe I'll get Frank to talk about you for you. But what what do you think made made you successful? What makes you good at this job, or what made you good at this job? Chief engineer, very good question. Chief engineer is a role that uh, the chief engineer is basically responsible for the entirety of the product, everything from uh, rough roughly, I'll say, the concept through the styling, through the design, through the tooling, go drawing, sign up, and then they follow manufacturing into mass production and they guarantee quality, safety, uh, performance. And um, the interesting role, the, the, the interesting part of that role is that the chief engineer is not part of the functional team nor part of the technical community nor part of the manufacturing community. Uh, they need to lead a very, um, uh, they need to lead a lot of folks that they're actually not from a organization uh, chart standpoint, they're not in charge of these folks. Mm. So it's a very interesting role, but they are also considered somewhat of a neutral party. And Frank and I, uh, feel, and Frank, if you want to jump in here, the role of the chief engineer is critical for successful development, scale up, and launch of a product. And I know this is an area that Frank is very passionate about. Um, he's developed many successful chief engineers throughout um, throughout his career. Um, and I, I do, I, I was a little shy about talking about myself, so maybe that's why I'm a little lacking in words here. I would love Frank to jump in and um, talk about this in more depth. Well, the you know the the chief engineer uh, is totally focused on the customer, and mm -hmm. uh, they they eat, they drink, they sleep, they shower in the morning thinking about the customer and the product. And a lot of companies that Laura and I have been working with uh, recently because of our Ohio State connection um, and the class that we teach, we find that that's a, a something that's missing. And, and, uh, you know, the, the chief engineer doesn't work in a vacuum either. Okay. The, the chief engineer needs a system. We've been talking about people have asked the other companies have asked us about what makes a chief engineer successful, what kind of person it is. Um, you, you know, obviously you got to hire the right people. You know, you, the, the chief engineer has to have a lot of initiatives because the initiative, because the chief engineer is going, what makes them successful is they, they set a strong concept. They set goals. They drive the schedule. They meet the milestone criterias. Um, they, they meet everything that's required in order to execute the project. And, you know, you have functional organizations that support the individual tech technologies, but somebody has to be the peanut butter to glue it all together. And they can't do it by themselves either. So Laura has a team that goes through them to correlate each, every one of those areas and make and glue it all together. So it becomes that final 
product. And what we see with a lot of customer, what we see with a lot of different companies that we work with now is they don't have the system, that matrix organization, the system, um, nor do they have the chief engineer that has the experience, the technical excellence, the relationships and understanding of the systems, which is what made Laura successful with the passport to support the, the product development. We equate it to kind of like diving into a pool. If you dive into a pool, there's a lot of water in that pool. And, and eventually you'll pop up to the surface and start swimming. Now, which direction you swim, that's up to you. But the, the pool, the water supports you. That's the system of a good lean product process development company. If you jump, jump into a pool and there's no water, you just hit the ground, <laughs> right? So the chief engineer has a lot of support from the systems, but you got to hire the right people. Warren has a lot of initiative, a lot of experience. She's been developed through she was on my 03 pilot team in 2003. She became LPL in 2016, 2015. I mean, she was on the, the 03 pilot. She's checked all the boxes. She was cheap. She was the designer. She worked in the factory. She knew about sales. She did R&D. Uh, she was uh, um, the first woman chief engineer in um, Honda Research Institute. So she knows the fundamental technologies and how those are developed. She checked all the boxes. She was project leader. She was assistant project leader. So then she was ready and she was developed uh, through projects, through mentorships, through leadership training, through job transfers, um, all of these things. She was ready to take on that leadership position where she had the, the total package of experience, technical excellence, all of the relationships she needed and the, and the system knowledge to be successful and execute that product. I, we work with other companies now. They say, hey, we'll just go outside and hire someone. You can't do that and be successful in your company. You need to develop these people from the ground up so that they can utilize the wealth of experience to execute a product that meets the customer requirements as well as the, the business requirements. I want to get into the development side of it in a minute, but I, I am curious about that matrix organization piece piece because it it sounds counterintuitive where you're giving somebody ownership of a product and they're responsible for uh, start to finish yet they have no formal authority over the people who are going to be supporting its development why why is that successful that that just doesn't seem on paper to make a lot of sense why does why does this matrix organization prove to be so effective Frank? Um, the reason that it's proven so effective is because the culture of the company supports it. If you don't have the culture of the company to support and recognize the chief engineer's role, as well as the roles of every single member in that team, the assistant chief engineer, the project leader, the team chief, if you don't recognize the role, then it doesn't work. But inside Honda, Inside Toyota, inside Ford, these roles have been defined and they're recognized. Therefore, like I say, it's difficult to explain, but it's kind of like the water that supports you when you swim. The system supports the, ex the, the execution of the team. Okay, so it's not something that's just sort of launched overnight. This, no. Uh, and, and the people behind it, like you were saying there was a lot of intention 
behind, it sounds, Laura's development. I assume every chief engineer at Honda or any automotive company's development. I'm curious about that. Uh, what is Honda's approach to developing great engineers? And how do you decide that, okay, yes, this is the right person who's going to lead a car program? Maybe, Laura, you can speak to your to your own development path, and then I'll ask Frank about you know, how these people are identified. Yeah. I I always knew that I had this talent for every chief engineer has their own sort of special sauce, but mine was always collaborating early and often, getting mm-hmm. as many people together who has their or who have their eye on the ball, who have a vested interest in the product, get them together early and get them together often. So that was my own sort of special sauce. And I knew that I wanted to be a chief engineer. So I certainly approached Frank early about it. And, you know, this isn't like popularity contest at Honda. It's an important role. So I was fortunate enough. And I think, you know, part of its nature and part of its nurture by nature, I had this skill set of collaborating with large groups of people early, often flushing out the concerns and then part of its nurture. So we had an organization who embraced me and who embraced many chief engineers and their own special Mm. talents and then added to that through, as Frank mentioned, this toolkit uh, of important skill sets you need. Because as chief engineer of a product, you need to know at least a little bit about a whole lot of things. And hopefully you know a lot about at least a few things. The company supported and ensured that the chief engineers had the skill sets they needed to move forward. And then how, do, how does how does the company know? I guess they don't know, but they're guessing that this person is ready. Uh, they, they, they're prepared to lead uh, development for a billion dollar program. How, how do you have confidence in that decision, Frank? Well, um, by the time you get to choosing a chief engineer, the candidate pool is very small Mm. and before laura was even picked to be chief engineer i mean uh she's recognized by the ceo of the company she would already have had exposure to not just north american region but she would have had exposure to global honda executive Mm. leadership i mean she would have already done two or three or four projects uh, with multiple presentations to the CEO, to the leader of the global automotive development uh, um, responsibility, not not just within R&D, but of course, North America, without a doubt. I mean, the, the president of North America and the leader, CEO of North America and the factory and as well. I mean, in previous projects, she would have had exposure to them. So once the decision would have been made, hey, we're going to choose this, this person or that person as as the chief engineer of this project, you know, it's vetted on an informal base, basis. I would have the responsibility of choosing it, but I definitely would have shot it up my the food mm-hmm. the food chain so that there were there would have been if there was any kind of clashes or opposition to it, then I would have received that feedback and maybe gone a different direction. But the candidate pool is very small. By the time you've done that, uh, you know, if you're developing, maybe we have responsibility for 15 projects. That's only 15, 15 times two. That's only 30 people to choose from, right? And the majority of those are minor model changes. So they om- almost always get weeded out. And then you're looking at full model changes. 
And so you're, the candidate pool is down to 15 and maybe only seven of them are even uh, available. You know, so it's timing, it's capabilities, it's, it's a, a rare occurrence. It's threading the needle. I always say to, and I may have told this to Laura, I said, it's like a carousel. It goes around and around and around. That brass ring is hanging out and you're in the right spot. Grab it and go. Otherwise you miss it because you know that it's going to go to another person. So you have to gr- take advantage of the opportunities when they're available and match up the right person. Mm. I was struck by, um, I didn't say you're shy, Laura, about talking about yourself, but you said you're, 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 uh, the trait you identified was collaborative. It wasn't, uh, I mean, surely you have towering technical competence, as Jim Morgan would say, our LEI, LPBD senior advisor, but you said collaborative. And um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense when you think about developing a product, particularly a vehicle where you need to work with a whole lot of people and resolve a lot of conflict. And um, it's not just technical mastery uh, that's going to take you far. It's, it's really about how do you work with a diverse group of people to deliver a great product? And I'll, I'll add one more thing that came from Jim Morgan's book since you brought him up. There's a really cool quote. Uh, he says the, from Rudyard Kipling, the strength of the pack is the wolf, the strength mm. of the wolf is the pack. That's very indicative of very successful companies. If you say the wolf is, the war is the wolf and she's the chief engineer, the pack supports her. And of course, we're, we're successful because uh, she leads the pack too to create that product. You know, it's an important point. I think too many people think of the chief engineer, and probably I do too, as this sort of um, lone spectacular figure. But probably what they're really doing is is really making everybody be better than they otherwise would be. And it's about leading a team to deliver something great, not a person delivering something great. Absolutely. It's about standing on the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. Mm. And, and that we were fortunate to have such strong technical as well as mm. team capability and the more that the chief engineer can pull the best out of every person the better the team the better the product will be it everything goes from good to great and so now you both are um you're out of honda working with oh, ohio is it ohio, the ohio state right you're teaching a class there on lean product and process development you're getting to see some other organizations um I was a bit disheartened to see in the news recently. So Spotify, they laid off 17% of the workforce, something like that. And their CEO said, uh, this is us getting lean. Uh, it's a very sad way to think about that. Um, and and you mentioned earlier, Frank, that companies that, that you're talking to, they think they hire into these roles uh, versus developing people into these roles. You know, as, as you, as you're outside of Honda, seeing more companies, what do you see as um, you know things companies should be thinking about vis-a-vis people development uh, and and um, how that contributes to to great products and and good business? Yeah, I you know what we we are seeing honestly um, when we go into these companies. I we're working with a company right now who did a massive layoff, and uh, and they're saying yeah we're going to get lean. Well, it's okay to do that if you if you have too many people and and you're and you're downsizing your product uh, development. Uh, but it's it's also an issue that you know you have to have people with experience, like we just talked about, and you have to have a system within which they work. 
and leadership that understands it. Uh, if you just con continually click over the top leadership, they don't understand the system that gets put in place. In in um, uh, Jim Morgan's book, he talks about Alan Mulally coming into Ford, mm. and he put a management system in place. He developed the people that were already there, and with his leadership behavior and the operating system, he created this sense of co-destiny with clear roles and responsibilities for everybody in his organization. And he presented vision and challenge and he did relentless execution. Mm. This is something that Jim talks about in his book, which I love. I think it's fantastic. The thing that gets me is a lot of the companies that I meet or that we work with now, they have a new leader and they say, something's not working. Let's lay off the people. No, no. Ellen Mulally didn't do that. He used the people and he introduced a system. So you need to have some kind of a system to support them. That water that I was talking about earlier to support everybody, to make them successful. And what we're seeing with companies that we get, that we work with now is maybe those systems are flawed or there's no system in place. Uh, what do you think, Laura? Yeah. So it's interesting how many companies, at least the ones we work with, think lean means firing people. Think yeah. lean means mm -hmm. reducing workforce when it has nothing at all to do with that. In our no. class, we talked about the 4PK process, which is based off of Jim Morgan's book. It's based off the Toyota product development system uh, book and activity. And it's all about understanding your customer, collaborate early and often, make sure you have very clear and explicit metrics. You have compatibility events, you have a culture of prospection, and then all of your knowledge is captured and transferred forward. Once you do all those things, you may find that you can reduce headcount, you can reduce manpower, but the reduction of manpower doesn't come first. Getting things right comes first. And, and I'll go one step further. In the 4PK system, we talk about developing the right product with a great process. And with the people organized in the correct way and the correct or roles and responsibilities, continually seeking perfection in the product as well as the business and capturing know-how while you're going along. If any one of these is a zero, then the whole thing is a zero. And, uh, and, and Jim says this in his book. And, and, and I really took it to heart because you walk into these companies today and they might have a good process, but they don't have the people to execute it. Or they might have... Or they might have a good product, but they don't have the good process. Or they might not continually try to make that product better through perfection because they lost the know-how management. There's there's a lot of things. You need all five of those issues in order to be successful. When we talk to companies today, and we go into these companies, it's something that came out in, in Jim Morgan's book. A lot of companies confuse talking with doing. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's an amazing thing. We go in there and they're just talking and you're like, okay, all right, we're talking now. Where's the plan? Where's the a three? Where are the tools of lean that we need to utilize? Where's your summarization? Where's your problem solving report? Where's your obey? Where's your centralized planning and communication site where you communicate? They seem to think that they attended a meeting and that's work. That's not work. The meetings are should be less and less and less, and doing should be more and more and more. 
And it's, I'm not sure where that fits in, but that's a very frustrating part for me when I go into these companies that I work at and they say, how can we approve? Like, well, first of all, you should start doing stuff instead of just talking about doing what you're doing. Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting point because what I, what I think you're getting at Frank is, is, uh, the design of, of management systems that enable people to do, uh, to do the work of engineering designing a product people love and then the system enables uh, good decision making and information flow so that you don't need to uh, spend so much time in a conference room figuring out hey what did we do what didn't we do is that is that kind of what you're talking about there the system that enables engineers to engineer versus uh, spend time yeah well I I, what we find a lot of times is that um, when we go in there, the system is correct. Yes, that's one way to spit, of, of saying it. But a lot of times they have the tools. They don't have that organization where somebody's responsible for executing it. Yeah, that single point of responsibility in many cases is unclear. It's like everyone's responsible. And what ha what we find is that when everyone's responsible, in reality, nobody's responsible. Little things don't get done. Why do you think that that is so commonplace? I, I well, number one, it goes back to what you had just mentioned about downsizing. A lot of companies downsize, and they think this job is duplicative of other jobs, but it's not. You need to have somebody who ties it all together. It's no different than you know you have big pieces of fabric that that you make your clothes out of but you need the thread that pulls it all together otherwise a shirt's not a shirt a shirt's just a piece of it's, it could be a rag it could be a dishcloth it could be whatever else but you need to have that thread and a lot of companies say well we don't need the thread we got all the big pieces we don't need the thread and uh, you need to stitch it together somehow and i think that through the downsizing they've lost it in that in that idea yeah, I think also making metrics clear. I think culturally, in the last 10, 15 years, it's become sort of cool to say we will empower the associates to make their own decisions. And with that sort of mentality, the desire to have these very explicit metrics, very explicit collaborative metrics with a single point responsibility that's kind of gone by the wayside. So you can spend an entire day in meetings where the executive or senior leader or your boss or whatever can say, yeah, we got to work on these 10 things. And you go, yeah, I'm working on these 10 things. And then everybody leaves the meeting and that's it. And then the next day you have the same conversation again and again and again. If, the, if, if explicit metrics existed and single point responsibility existed, then you could drive the ball, move the ball forward. Whereas right now you can spend an entire lifetime just having that conversation again and again. Do you think in some cases it's uh, it's fear where if somebody is completely responsible, they may be easy to blame. And so people are reluctant to take that or no. I don't know about that. I think it's a, it's the system. It's the, if they had that role and responsibility right now, they think it's extra manpower. It's not extra manpower. It's manpower that's dedicated towards executing a certain thing. And that certain thing is tying different cross-functional requirements together 
into a very solid summary from which you can act upon. The only purpose of making a summary is to create a plan. That's the only reason to ever do it. You know, and a lot of people look at it, oh, why do I have to summarize things? I'm working on it. Um, it's, in, it's in work. It's in process. Well, if it's in work and it's in process, why can't you summarize it? That is a, a common uh, discussion point that we have with companies right now. They're like, we're too busy working to some, make a summary. Well, if you made the summary, maybe you wouldn't be too busy working. It's, it's like a, a, an endless do loop. But it needs a system. Uh, well, it sounds like it's sort of a balance between um, empowerment and accountability. And uh, you, you, if you're going to give somebody responsibility to, to do something and they don't deliver, what happens next, you know? And moreover, if you think about like empowering, like, like when we did the passport, we empowered Laura through the chief engineer position to create right. a new model. She had all those things I talked about, towering technical competence, experience, the relationships within the company, the systems to support her. If she didn't have all those things together, if any one of those were a zero, the whole thing would have been a failure. Yeah, and I like what you say, Matt, about accountability. I love that. Um, account, uh, empowerment without accountability has no value. Accountability without empowerment is also a weak proposition. I had as chief engineer empowerment. I also had accountability. I mm. knew that I was on the line when I did not perform. That was very explicitly, uh, that, that was not implied. It was explicit and you always want, and the metrics were clear. I wasn't kind of feeling around for, okay, what is it these guys want to see? The metrics were clear and either you met them or you didn't. And any part of that project, if there was a problem, I don't care whether the tire didn't work or the electrical harness didn't attach or the infotainment didn't work or the tailgate didn't go up. I called Laura. Laura was the one-stop shop. I'm like, what's wrong with your project? Get on it. And she already knew. Because she was living it. Yeah, it's a it's an exciting experience uh, being empowered, but also being accountable. Uh, accountable that also actually sounds like it's more difficult, but it takes the pressure off the chief engineer. It takes the pressure off of everyone in the organization because they're not second guessing what someone is looking for. It's very easy yeah. to understand what your what the expectations are and whether or not you've delivered. So uh, I have two car people here with me, and uh, there's a lot of change going on in the automotive industry. So I feel compelled to ask some questions about the future of what you think the future of the automotive industry is, not to mention we have a Cybertruck rolling off. I don't have a pre-order. What do you think, you know, as, as this EV push is happening, a lot of companies are starting to pump the brakes. We saw GM, they're saying they're going to roll back investment. It looks like Toyota may have the right approach with hybrids and uh, figuring out some of the gnarly problems with battery technology before making the big push into EVs. But what what do you see as kind of the future of automotive? If you were still at Honda, what would what would you be asking? What are some of the, the, the things you would be thinking about? Maybe uh, Laura, starting with you from a, from a 
product perspective. Yeah, I'm really, so two things come to mind. One is the Cybertruck, and that is what I would consider, you know, I wasn't a part of any of these meetings. I would consider that to be a pure engineering solution. It sounds like a really fun meeting where a bunch of engineers got together and, you know, they put up a, uh, a statement. What would you do to create an extremely durable vehicle that's also extremely easy to manufacture? And the Cybertruck's a really neat vehicle. It's, uh, I, 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 it's you got stainless steel panels that are extremely easy to stamp. The overall manufacturing process, um, I don't know, the cost might be reduced by a third of conventional manufacturing processes. And Elon Musk definitely, I'm guessing, used what I would consider a point-based solution. He's coming up with a product and then he's going to shop it around and see who wants it. And because Elon Musk is Elon Musk, he's going to get a lot of nibbles. And this can potentially impact the industry in a very positive manner. We're going places where they say, we say no man has gone before and we'll see mm. what happens. At the same time, you have Toyota who's using more of what you call a set-based solution and they're looking, they're not ready to give up on hybrids because they're looking at the customer value side of things and it just doesn't add up to go 100% all in on EVs. They understand the customer value like few others do. So you're seeing these two very divergent sort of directions and you know there's value in both and i'm excited to see where the future goes what do you think frank well i think you're spot on about uh toyota they they talk about they want to avoid inconveniencing customers they they talk about diverse solutions are necessary for diverse situations and they always talk about um being prepared to meet customer expectations quickly and flexibly that's what they say those are the things that they that they they believe. What what I'm I'm not 100% understanding. I'm going to quote this right, but they talk about creating mobility for all. Their mission is not to make electric vehicles. Their mission is to execute happiness for the customer or something like that. I I forget exactly what they're saying. And if you look at what uh, Tesla is doing, like Lord just mentioned, what what's their their long term vision is high-speed, fully automated production lines for self-driving electric vehicles. That's what they want to do. They just want to make self-driving electric vehicles. Where does it talk about customer in there? It doesn't say that. If you think about Toyota's long-term uh, challenges, they're talking about how do you make, uh, how do you lower emissions to be like zero emissions to make the world a better place? And how do you pr produce diverse solutions to meet the customer requirements? And how do you constantly evolve your products and processes through continual process improvement? That's lean. How do you build your capability in order to create, hey, maybe electrified vehicles are the correct way to go. I think that's part of their solution. They have like, they're, they're, they're modifying their TNGA uh, platform to the BZ platform to introduce electric vehicles. That's fine. If the, if the, if the marketplace goes towards electric, they can pivot very quickly and flexibly to meet the customer demand, customer demand, or they can continue making hybrids, or they can make more gas engines. Tesla is all in on one one way: self-driving electric vehicles with a high-speed, fully automated production line. And moreover, 
Toyota has the system of the water that we talked about to support whatever direction they want to go. Plug-in hybrids, hydrogen, whatever. They can go anyway. Tesla is fully dependent upon Elon, if you ask me. If, I mean, do they have chief engineers? Do they have a system? Or do they just execute what Elon says? I, I think that's the big difference between the two. And the future of, of uh, the marketplace right now, which was your original question, um, I think it depends upon the customers. That's what it depends upon. And it depends on technology. You know, if technology goes in a, in a certain way, uh, where electric vehicles become a lot more convenient, then maybe this will be adopted more quickly. But I don't see it anywhere in the in the near future because the technology is not there just yet. Mm. Well, uh, I'll leave it there. Uh, Frank and Laura, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. I'd like to thank Frank and Laura for joining me here on the podcast. They'll be at the LEI Summit in March 2024 as keynote speakers talking about lean product and process development. If you register by January 31st, you save on the early bird price. Head over to lean.org summit to learn more. And thanks to you all for listening. Until next time.